This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello, it's Art at the End of the World, the podcast that features artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. And my name is Mark Wigmore. Welcome to another edition of Remix. And it's a conversation I am thrilled to share with you as we have fresh news on my guest, classical jazz world musician, Ron Davis. Ron was nominated for a Juno Award at the upcoming ceremony in Saskatchewan. Very exciting. And the name of the game here is to take our conversations from the first season of the show, done very much uh, do-it-yourself style from my home office, and remix the episode for the purposes of our Zoomer podcast network and the new Classical FM presenting this version of the show. So glad to have you here. Thrilled to have Ron on. And a reminder that Art at the End of the World is brought to you by Crows Theatre, one of the country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. Crows Theatre creates unforgettable productions that examine and illuminate the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheatre.com for info and tickets. And Secret Life of a Mother continues at Crows this week from playwright Hannah Moscovich. We're also sponsored by Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients including Crow's Theatre, the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and others. RedEyeMedia.ca to learn more about that team. All right, so Ron Davis, here's a little introduction for you. Well, I can only say so much about Ron that can equal his prowess and thoughtfulness and creativity as a writer, composer, teacher, and piano player. Really outstanding. What a career. He's also just a great guy to pal around with and shoot the breeze. Ron and I have known each other for the better part of 20 years. We've hung out as friends. Uh, we've spoken as arts contemporaries, but it's always interesting to speak to him in a longer format and really dig into what he does and what he thinks and how he arrived at the music he creates. Ron's parents survived the Holocaust and moved to Toronto in the 1940s, and he's really been a Toronto guy his whole life. Growing up here in the city, it's a little unusual. So often we hear from people who who move to this city. Uh, that's not the case for Ron. He starts in music, playing piano at the Royal Conservatory. Very passionate about it. And then goes to law school. Uh, He studied French at the U of T, received his PhD, and worked on this incredible thesis. And then at some point, within all that, the French and the law and the rest of it, he came back to music and has gone on to release a dozen records or so. And he'll certainly speak to that in this conversation. I first met Ron, I'm going to guess around 2001 or two, working at CFRB in Toronto, another radio station. And I was really impressed with his playing and uh, just a, a very affable guy. And it seems like every time I hear him, he's adding a new element or pushing the orchestrations or uh, including world music themes or just melting all the music he's studied into a new form. His ensemble is often known as Symphronica, and they will be performing this Saturday night 8 p.m. at the 918 Bathurst Center for Culture and Arts in downtown Toronto. And then, again, on Saturday, May 23rd, at the same location. Tickets and info at bemusednetwork.com and rondavismusic.com. He's up for Best Instrumental Album of the Year at the Junos with a record you're going to hear from in moments, Symphronica, up front. An exciting artist, I was thrilled when he agreed to sit down with me for this podcast. I think it's actually the first podcast we recorded for this whole series. He lives in a church that's been renovated in downtown Toronto for residential use, and that is where we sat down at his dining room table. Here's Ron Davis on Art at the End of the World. I've never bought or owned a car in all my life. Is that true? It is true. Why? I'm proud of it. Why? Really? 
Yeah, man. From what perspective? Well, uh, perspective that I've saved a lot of money. <laughs> well, that, I like that. You know what? I was just reading that the other day. That the number one way to save money, uh, you know, for millennials and everybody who's complaining because they can't make a go of it, just lose the car. Lose the car, dude. And especially now, I mean, I came up through it in the hard times back in the day when they didn't have car sharing or bike sharing. Back in the right? 80s, right? Yeah, way back. I think 70s? Around the time of Confederation. <laughs> and so, yeah, like walking, I'm a walkaholic. Yeah. And so that helped. And yeah. Tens of thousands of dollars in your pocket. I'm going to I'm gonna see your tens of thousands and raise them to maybe hundreds over, like, you know, I'm not a young guy, That's right? Pretty- so. Pretty good. You could, you could have fooled me. Yeah. Uh, Ron Davis is on the podcast, everybody. Smattering of applause right there. Yeah. There wow. He is. How did you get Ron Davis? <laughs> what about me? I feel so marginalized. <laughs> uh, just lately, in the last few records, uh, uh, Ron ends up as part of album titles over and over again. So I'm driving on my way here, and I think to myself, uh, uh, I like, you know, he puts Ron in these titles, and I kind of like that, and I could have, maybe give him a, a, a you know, uh, give him a little hard time about that but no this man uh classical jazz world music so many influences what you do what you've done in the music marketplace over the last 20 30 years it's very specific to you does that feel it's reasonable true. to point out it, it does i wish you would give me a hard time we could have fun with this <laughs> actually a symphronica <laughs> up front it's a lot of ron in there and 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 Mark Wigmore, what city uh, am I a native of? Uh, Toronto. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I I just had a, a blog review come out of my release show, and um, this fellow, he's English, and he has that English dry sense of humor. Says, I didn't know what to make of this Ron Davis fellow. I thought he was either a singer or, with his name in the title, a megalomaniac. But it turns out, and then he says all sorts of nice things. All right. So um, I wrote a piece based on George Gershwin's I Got Rhythm over a decade ago. Right. And uh, for some reason, I had the Jetsons in mind. Remember the Jetsons? Of course. You know, futuristic, kind of Futurama before there was uh, Matt Groening. Right? I guess you could say that George, the Jetsons theme and the Simpsons theme maybe have something in common, like this sort of boombastic fun. You know. I never thought of that. That's yeah. actually quite brilliant. But so when I was thinking of the Jetsons, remember everything was a Tron. That was like the Oventron or the Rismatron or something. So yeah. I wrote this song based on the old jazz standard I got rhythm, and I called it Rhythm Iran. And it was just the Jetsons thing. And it was the great arranger and pianist and musician Tanya Gill who said, Oh, you put your name in Rhythm Iran. And I said, I did. And ever since then, I've kind of been intrigued to put my name in songs. So there's Symphronica or... The new album is up front. Up front. Yeah, the last album was Rhythm Ron. <laughs> yeah. But I have to tell you, there is a great jazz tradition of doing that. So go back and look at Art Pepper's albums. Sure. Or Lee Connett's with all the... You, you know, know, plays on last names. Yeah, and, or, well, know. no, he Lee Connett's like, did all the adverbs. Uh, did he do emotionally? He might have done emotionally. Or, but we even think of like a Monk's Dream or something. Monk's Dream. Sure. So I'm going to plead... Uh, innocent uh, with the name thing and do you feel okay so jazz tradition but you know I did mention it off the top classical uh, world music especially on this new record have you often found as you're you know looking to figure out your next gig what the next record is going to sound like that you do have this kind of specific place in the uh, the music landscape that, that's out there it, it I mean you, you don't want to sound stereotypical but it is hard to comp- compartmentalize uh, on some level what you do uh, absolutely um, it is not intentional um, I just do what I do uh, the arts have a history uh, of people who are one of a kind yeah and I'm not you know, I'm not saying that I'm like that, but whether it's Freddie Mercury or actually a name that often comes to mind, it sounds crazy, is Gilbert Gottfried, right? right? Like there's only one Gilbert Gottfried. And I don't know about Gilbert Gottfried or Freddie Mercury, but I do know about me. I just, this is what I do. You're supposed to make music and you're supposed to make the music you find inside. And this is what comes out. And then I learn through 
comparison that I make and through comments that other people make that, oh, this is different. And it's great, you know, the arts and the world at large, but the world the uh, world of the arts is a funny world because on the one hand, uniqueness is celebrated. How often in biographies or uh, uh, reviews do we see unique, one of a kind? But um, at the same time, uniqueness is also partly marginalized because the great paradox of the arts is people want something totally new as long as it sounds exactly the same as everything else. Yeah, that's very true. We, we repackage <laughs> over and over again, and all you need to do is be around long enough so that you can actually hear that happen. Yeah, I'm hanging, I'm, I'm, uh, hanging in for that, le- hanging in and hanging out for that legend status. It's right. like, <laughs> So what, 17 records? Well, thanks. No, it's not 17 yet. It's 12. 12. 12, yeah. A dozen. dozen, And uh, I hope pretty good. 13. Um, Yeah, and and what I'm most proud of is that uh, each of my 12 records over a span of 16 years is different. Um, um, I've never done... The, the same thing twice and actually it's interesting some people value that I value that it's just what I do I value it too thank you yeah. uh, but there's some people who don't like it I mean I will say and I'll, I'll go all the way back to the beginning with you which is about uh, 18 years ago 16 years ago maybe uh, I'm working at News Talk 1010 CFRB and, and this record lands on my desk and I'm listening to it and I'm thinking to myself wow this guy's pretty good I mean I really am, am digging it and uh, I think we had you on with John Don be, yeah, we started out. On we just seven thirty on a Saturday morning. Well, I think it was yeah, it was just like a straight up. We did a, a regular interview, and then I booked you on yeah. for John's birthday, <laughs> and you came in and you played us in and out of uh, breaks and everything, and it was really fun, and that was so great. But I have often thought of how much I listened to those first couple records, and sometimes with the I, I love everything new, but I do I, I love those. You know, they hold a certain place in my heart, and of course, you know. You, I think that's what you do with music, right? You you have certain records that really stick with you because you were at a certain place in your life. And, and of course, you were doing sp- something specific. So it was like that perfect marriage, you know? Yeah, no. And, and, and uh, I've heard it said, and I actually believe that... Uh, the music of your life is fixed by the time you're 30. Right. And it doesn't mean you're not going to listen to new stuff, and it doesn't mean you're not going to like new stuff. Right. But um, I find myself uh, having to discipline myself. You do have to push yourself. Yeah, you have to push yourself you to do. listen to the new stuff, and then you kind of fall back on uh, on the old stuff. I mean, look at the Heritage Rock, you know, the museum rock uh, industry, you know, people filling stadiums to go see music, I, essentially live versions of albums that are 20, 30, 40, not 50 well yeah 50 years old it's one last party before it's all over kind of but there are lots of one last parties where like even in a city like toronto but elsewhere there's great live music happening so you know it's great that we can be nostalgic yeah uh, although nostalgia isn't what it used to be insert drum shot (laughs) drum shot there sure isn't and um (laughs) and uh on the other hand uh i you know i just keep making music i believe in and um I, i have to tell you the new record that i made is the first one that uh, was ever produced by someone else, by the great Mike Downs. Yeah, Mike Downs on there, who's, yeah. uh, you know, seemingly monster. very busy. <laughs> he's very busy, and he's just, he's he's the best. Uh, it's a cliche, but uh, it's so true. I'm so proud of it. Like, I can't, I, it's like, for people who have children, I don't have children that I know of, but for people who do have children, um, it's you watch your child grow, and you're so proud of your child, and, and they achieve. And I, this album is, is it's I'm so proud of it. What I like about it too is, as much as it's a departure from earlier records, it's also each track takes you on its own little journey, which I really do love about that record. Yeah, funny you should say that because um, in the concert version of the recording. I've been telling the audience that uh, it's exactly what you just said—a mm-hmm. journey—and we go to uh, Latin America for these rhythms, or we go to Italy for the song I do with my wife, uh, Daniela, uh, Nina, or we go to the heart of American jazz and just travel all around. And uh, people connect with that, I think. Uh, People like the idea of a journey. Yeah. 
And that's what all art, but especially music, should be. Like, I'm inviting you, the listener, into my space, into my world, into my home, and I'm going to give you a little tour, and I'm going to tell you a little story, except I'm only going to do it with musical notes. I'm not going to do it with words, uh, which makes our challenge in instrumental music just a little harder. And uh, that's that's what you go for. Let's uh, go back to uh, your journey a little bit. I mean, one of the elements within your life that I think is fascinating is that you actually are a Torontonian. There's very, there's so few uh, that have been here most of their lives. And is that true? You, you came up here in Toronto, is that right? I was I was born in Toronto. Uh, <laughs> Seems and, unbelievable. And here yeah, we are in Toronto. I'm, I'm actually going to put in my candidacy to be uh, pickled in the Museum of Toronto right. as uh, <laughs> right. as a rare resident born in Toronto. And even more unusual is the fact that my wife, the great uh, musician and artist Daniela Nardi, was born and raised in Toronto. So homegrown. Homegrown. Tell me about your upbringing. What neighborhood did you grow up? Uh, what was it like? Uh, your parents, I know, immigrants and, and had gone through a difficult time in their lives. So I think that brings a certain mood to a kid growing up and a family growing up. But it is the story of so many Torontonians who are coming from different parts of the world. So tell us a little bit about growing up and that experience. Well, I grew up uh, in the Dufferin and Glencairn area of Toronto. And if you know Toronto, so it was, uh, I call it the southern part of North York, literally on the wrong side of the tracks of a, of a more high-end area called Forest Hill. Right. It was very much an immigrant neighborhood, mostly Italians, a few Jewish families. There was one uh, West Indian family who, uh, who lived there. And my parents, uh, um, and this is the part that connects so closely with what's going on today, my parents were refugees. Right. Um, they uh, survived the Nazi concentration camps and uh, had their families murdered and found themselves in a refugee camp in Austria and that was run by the American army in the f 1940s. Is that something they were able to talk about? Or Oh, absolutely. Really? Quite openly. Actually, yes, uh, that's an extremely astute question, Mark, because many people, refugees today or refugees back then, uh, were not or are not able to discuss the traumas that they go through. My parents were quite open about it. It was actually to a fault because, you know, growing up, I would hear my mother say, oh, I was in camp with her. And usually when you hear I was in camp with someone, you have sure. visions of the bucolic summer scene. Yeah. It wasn't quite what my mother meant. Not at all. But, uh, but they were able to talk about it. So, you know, they came here as refugees and they, and it's the refugee immigrant story. They had nothing. My father went down to uh, Spadina, which was a manufacturing district, and convinced someone that he'd be a good worker and started scrubbing and cleaning and then worked his way up to have a little factory. And so I was raised um, from a poorer class to a middle class upbringing as my father toiled. And and you actually experienced that, that change? Yeah, uh, I got the tail end of it. My, I, I'm the third of three brothers. And Great. so my older brothers experienced that, that slow rise from a small rented apartment for, for the family to a bungalow in what was then an, an almost uh, distant suburb of Toronto. It's by the Glencairn subway station right. um, uh, before it was built. So, uh, but what I did get is that work ethic. I mean, my father was up at four in the morning and, you know, and my mother, uh, who was a classic house housewife, would, would be cleaning every day or making chicken soup from stock. Yeah, not from stock, from scratch. Right, rather. sure. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was raised with that. And, and of course, you'll appreciate and maybe other people uh, children of immigrants who hear this will appreciate that. Uh, when I started babbling about uh, music as a career, my parents thought that the apocalypse had come and uh, <laughs> would probably think of, uh, I don't know, fleeing to a distant planet rather than have their son become a jazz musician. But did they not look at the great lineage and heritage of music within you know, Jewish culture and and. And there certainly had been a, a fair share of success stories within that world, but that was not what they had nah, planned for you. No, nah, the only thing they knew about the great lineage and heritage in, in certain parts of Jewish culture was right. the lawyers, the accountants, and the doctors. That's funny, because um, they kind of squeezed me into be getting a law degree, um, and that's a whole 
that's a whole podcast in itself right on, on how, how how that happened but at that point you had already been to the conservatory and so on you you had definitely gone down the path of music by the time you yeah i had already started world. doing gigs then and i had studied with uh this is in the 70s when there weren't the jazz programs were just beginning and it wasn't the norm to get a degree in jazz. And so it's I, almost like taking classes for stand up comedy or something <laughs> like that. Like you wouldn't, it just wasn't done at the time. Yes. But, um, there was a teacher in Toronto and every chance I get to, uh, uh give a shout out to Darwin Aiken, I do. And Darwin taught Joe Seeley and, and, and Aaron Davis and Nancy Walker. So I had, I had been studying with this great teacher, Darwin Aiken, uh, and I had already started doing gigs, and, and that's when I got sidetracked into law. I mean, was there any joy in that path? Yeah, I didn't actually really know that much about that side of your life until recently. So it's sort of fascinating to me. But you went down the path. Clearly, your parents put some pressure on you to do it. I mean, you must have mixed feelings about the whole experience now. Um well, so, uh, you know, going backwards in time, uh, I, I, I do practice law part-time. Right. I'm quite privileged to have it. I mean, there is al- almost no one in the music business and uh, in the arts in general yeah. who doesn't do something else. Sure. People teach or people do uh, film music or, or commercial music uh, or do interior decorating or project management. I, I have this law degree that I'm... Uh, that. I have to recognize as a privilege. And uh, I also have the privilege of actually being a partner in a, in a, a downtown Toronto law firm, Fogler Rubinoff, and, and, and they're very tolerant of my ways. So my running joke is that 30% of my time is law and 70% of my income. 70% of my time is music and 30% of my income, um, which is the way of the music business. Uh, I, you know, I'd it's love- almost like you saw ahead and really thought, well... Well, my parents did. I mean, you know, uh, there's uh, a, a, an actor once said... Said, who, an actor who was who was down on his luck at the time once said, uh, a, a, and this actor was down on his luck, did not have a fallback. You know, at best he could be a server in a restaurant. You know, but nothing uh, in, in the professions. And he was asked, um, "Are you sorry that you didn't get a law degree or have anything to fall back on?" And the actor said, "No, I may be down on my luck, but if you have something to fall back on, then you fall back on it." Right. So I'll never know. I'm privileged to have the law degree, but I make most of my life in music, and that's the greater privilege. Although there's another way of looking at it. If I had gone through with my law degree, which I had for a few decades now, conservatively, I would have had, let's say, a $100,000 a year salary, right? Right. So I got my call to the bar 32 years ago. Multiply that by (laughs) $100,000. This this freaking music career has caught me millions of dollars. It's the most expensive thing I've ever done. But you've enjoyed it very much. This is true. Very much so. I I just want to bring this up because it was fascinating to me. uh, Something that during your studies, um, I read this, and I I don't know if I got this exactly right, but... uh, Chronosemantics. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, the, the, wow. the study of time and meaning. Is that, have I got that right? What that is? You do. Um, yes. So you have just uh, named the title of my doctoral thesis right. at the University of Toronto, which I'm honored to say won an award, actually. Yeah, wow. Thesis of the year. And um, we'll take these awards as they come. Yo, baby, bring them on. <laughs> yeah. And um and 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 that is exactly what my doctoral thesis was about. I'm so impressed that you found that. By the way, I have an extra copy here if you want to take it home. <laughs> my, paper my or guess, digital. My guess is you have an extra you know, 20 to 30 <laughs> copies maybe kicking around. Now, uh, you know, you're a wise man. <laughs> you can, you know, just have them in the merch pile just in case. I'm, I'm waiting for Hollywood to come knocking for the film version. <laughs> you know. semantics. Come on, dude. Here yeah. it is. I'm maybe, thinking Ryan Gosling, right? And it yeah, sounds like yeah. it could be a Netflix series yeah. as opposed to just the 90 minute okay. arc of a film right okay, i can work I'm, with that but as long as like maybe jj abrams did it or <laughs> that's you true know, or, it's true you need the last guy or, yes yeah, yeah i gotta get something I, I, now that sounds fascinating but at the same time it sounds like a lot of hard work it was uh labor but it wasn't work and in, in the sense that it 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 was uh next to learning piano and um becoming a, a musician it's by far the hardest thing I've done. Um, law pales next to 
a doctoral thesis of that kind. But you know what? Time, space, and meaning. Time, well, not space, just time. <laughs> right. So it's even more difficult. Mm. And, and let me tell you, well, it, it's actually a bit in the zeitgeist. Again, no pun intended, because zeit, of course, is a German word for time. Right. But in the zeitgeist at the moment, people are reexamining the question of time. And as we sit here today, Mark Wigmore, I will tell you without any hesitation and with absolute confidence, we do not know what time is. It's a mystery. We know it's there. And uh, St. Augustine in his confessions actually says the exact same thing. He starts wondering, what is time? What is this uh, phenomenon that we all know? And his conclusion is, I know it's there. I know what it is when I'm talking about it, but I can't explain what it right, is. Right. So it's a great mystery. There's a measurement we created for it. And it feels like different lengths. And, and so there's a lot of perspective involved. And I, I guess those were all the types of experiences and elements that you were trying to kind of put together. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it, it is fair to say. The closest I came to any definition, I mean, when you try and define time, you usually get stuck at before and after. Right. It's And it's hard to define before and after other than some synonym for before and after. Uh, but then you realize time is many things uh, because, yes, you can measure it, but there are types of time that you can't measure uh, because we've all done something for one minute that seems like an hour right. and something for one hour that seems like a minute. And that's beyond measurement. And uh, it's a huge topic, and there's some great books coming out. Um, even James Gleick, the famous uh, American author, science author, who uh, writes popular books, but profound books on science, has just uh, released a book on time. So, But uh, we never quite figured it out. And um, <laughs> No? No, no. No one has a good explanation of time. It's just right. that they have workable methods of talking about time. And if you really want to seal the deal, we also don't know what meaning is. Right. Meaning just presents itself. And that's why I did a thesis on time and meaning. Because time is in language, and it's there. We know it's there, just don't know what it is. But meaning is available to us. It, we understand there's meaning, but there's no actual workable theory on what meaning is. <laughs> that uh, incredible field that you studied, I mean, have, have you felt like that's something you've been able to incorporate into, into your music life? Everything is music, Mark. Right. Everything is the music. Sure. And so um, I recognize my academic background as informing uh, a lot of the music that I do, but sitting down with Mark Wigmore uh, in his podcast studio or going... We're in your house, by the way. I just broke that wall. Oh, <laughs> uh, damn. It's a nice you house. I was way. trying to create the illusion. Yes, <laughs> yeah. well, uh, well, if we're going to if we're gonna uh, go at it, uh, this house is an old Anglican church. Right. So we are sitting right in the middle of what was an Anglican church, looking one way at the entrance and looking the other way at the altar. If your parents could see you now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, but uh, everything is music, dude, yeah. including not owning a car, yeah. including a doctoral thesis and a law degree. Um, and if you're Charlie Parker, those bar mitzvah gigs he used to do, or cleaning dishes while listening to Art Tatum, that's he used to do in a restaurant. Yeah. It's everything is the music. You are listening to Art at the End of the World. I'm Mark Wigmore. My conversation with Ron Davis continues in a moment. You're listening to the Zoomer Podcast Network. Let's get back to our Art at the End of the World remix episode and talk to Ron Davis about how the world around us has affected his writing and composing throughout his career. It's a, it's a crazy world out there right now. Uh, a political discourse, tribalism. So often I talk to jazz musicians and I ask them where they got the ideas for their song. And it's like, wow, it's just a great melody. And we put that together. And, and, and yeah, we worked off that. And I go, oh, okay. I always expect that there might be some greater story there or a moment of time that really helped them uh, formulate an idea of maybe for an entire album or for a particular song. I mean, where do you stand there? Is it just about, okay, I, I think I've got something here tonally that works, or are you actually affected by, by 
the wild world that we're in and and that we can hear something of that in your music i mean i'm guessing with this new record specifically where there are a lot of world influences that that may be the case but i don't know yeah sure there are some times when a, a song will come through uh be, because an interesting chord progression but more often than not i'm searching for something and um, there's a song on the new recording on Symphonic Up Front called Les Angeliques, The Angelicals. Mm-hmm. And it stemmed from a poem by the great Quebecois uh, poet Emile Nelligan. Um, and it's just a short poem about him walking in the 19th century in the snowy woods of, Quebec, of Quebec and how beautiful it was. And I thought, how beautiful that is. And then I decided, I want to capture a moment of beauty. I want to create something that is slow and timeless and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's how that song came about. Um, and I know you've, you've composed or, or worked on music that with your parents in mind. Yes, yeah, so there, there you go. On, on, on the previous recording, Pockets in Fronica, there's a song called Hatzel Cedar Pesach. And that is a melody that comes from the Passover Seder tradition uh, that my father used to sing at the table right. um, during Passover Seders. And so um, I always thought, as I was growing up uh, and, and then into my 20s and, and beyond, um, I would hear that song and... and a little voice in my head would say, oh, man, wouldn't that be awesome if some jazz musician or Coltrane did it? And it took me far too long, you know, for, the, uh, for a guy with university degrees uh, uh, ought to have taken uh, to realize, hey, I can do that. Wait a second. Yeah, duh. And, and, but, but it's more than that. I think there's an, an emotional attachment to totally. that. And, and, and to invest in the way that you do creatively, it, totally. that takes its own little confidence step well yeah i mean it's you know it's there that connection is there sure um i'll give you do i want to step into that well i mean if you're in the arts you're fearless uh you should you better be fearless and by fearless i mean just so stupid you don't even pay attention (laughs) so i just step into all this uh stuff but the next the next recording which i hope will happen but certainly the, the 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 third concert of my symphronica season in toronto so on may 23rd um it comes very much from a place of searching, and it's, it's called um, the Instrumental Liberation Front. And five years ago, on the Jazz FM uh, website, um, I published a manifesto called the Instrumental Liberation Front, a manifesto. Right. And so this uh, cause... This it seems like your, your wife and you are both into manifestos, to some degree. Touché. Hers is an espresso manifesto. Uh, mine isn't as caffeinated. Uh, mine is uh, is more territorial, right. and and it's about um, it's about instrumental music and how instrumental music has been marginalized by the corporatization and by the commercialization and processing of music. I'm, I'm not the only one to complain about this. So um, in, in May, I'm doing this show, Instrumental Liberation Front. I hope to do a recording. And it is going to replant the flag for instrumental music. And the music that we are doing, I mean, we're doing this already, but this particular show, this particular concept um, shines a light on the engagement with and the production of instrumental music as a perfectly valid and, and desirable form of music that is a part of Western music history that we are now in the process of losing. So when you talk about, you know, more than just finding an interesting chord pattern in the music, everything that comes out in, in that show is, is about engaging with notes and sounds, but also engaging with the world and being the medium and being the intermediate or as the academics like to say, to mediate um, between the music and the and the world and the listener. I was watching a tribute to Grammy. It was a lifetime uh, award for Grammy uh, winners, and it was a big special they did on PBS. And I was noting that uh, they were celebrating uh, the Wrecking Crew, the guys who did a lot of backing up of people like the Beach Boys and Frank Sinatra and so on, um, Tijuana Brass... Booker T and the MGs, um, the meters, right? And I thought to myself, those guys all had hits. They were top 40. And there's no vocals. They were top 40. And it it kind of broke my heart to see that ship 
really disappearing on the horizon of, of music in a pop, in a very popular format because it's so wonderful you know and those are just pop examples but yeah and 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 there are others i mean even herbie hancock sure. uh and you just mentioned examples from the 60s and 70s which yeah. is when instrumental music began to be marginalized go back to the 50s sure and then we're talking about jazz you know jazz was the pop music well right you know but now words take over everything you could have a thousand instruments if you have one singer it's vocal music yeah. and, and it wins so the Instrumental Liberation Front. You, you heard it here first, Mark Wigmore, and listeners to Mark Wigmore's great podcast. I'll ask you this because I think Art Tatum was kind of one of your guys. Is that fair to say? Um, I'm going to pause here for a moment while I go on my knees and genuflect before <laughs> the name, the naming of the deity, Art Tatum. <laughs> you were a monk person as well, big yes, time? Yes, yes. Stumble, stumbling down the keyboard with Monk? I mean, what what was that, that listening spectrum as you were starting to really get into this part of your life? It was uh, completely intuitive. It was bottom-up. It was never top-down. It was never, for me, a case of reading a book on what you should be listening to or who the canonic greats of jazz or any music art. I think that comes later. I don't know how anybody could really get into to music from a, from a book. I think you're always just going to have that relationship where something punches you in the face or it makes your hair stand on end and that's that ends up being your person. I'd like to agree and to me that is the ideal uh, scenario, right. but I have noticed with the increasing academization of music yeah. with its greater uh scholarly uh, kind of uh, setting that it finds itself in. I mean, the music programs in universities are bigger and bigger and forever growing. I feel there actually is a top-down um, uh, orthodoxy. I understand. Uh, especially a, a learned class. appreciation. A learned appreciation. Right. And I, and I understand that, too, because, you know, especially in the classical world, there are so many references, both what it's doing uh, with melody and what it's uh, nodding to from, you know, like any art form with a long lineage there's always going to be these not and that's fun to discover and it's fascinating but hearing Jimi hendrix solo and all along the watchtower can you know have its own you know Effect. mark on your psyche and so it should it, it, it's true i mean i i i do observe in jazz though a a, a creeping orthodoxy where it's I, to me jazz has become a classical music in right. some senses sure. not in all senses right and it's interesting you just mentioned Jimi hendrix and but even in that case he's become a bit of an orthodoxy right um i mean i'm with you 100 percent the it's 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 mind-blowing if if asked i would tell a a young listener or someone trying to discover jazz yeah listen to monk or listen to tatum and listen to Jimi hendrix or not. Yeah. Um, and in my own case, in my playing or my music, I, I, I may have my own brand, but where I've noticed my difference uh, is in my listening. Because if you ask me to list my go-tos and my influences, they're often different or they only overlap partially with the others. Sure. Bill Evans, for example, is the mo probably the most influential uh, influential uh, uh, jazz pianist of his era. There was a poll in Downbeat not long ago, and mm -hmm. um, not necessarily the greatest, because in that same poll, a hundred pianists named Art Tatum as the greatest, but Bill Evans as the most influential. Right, and uh, he certainly could set a mood. He he. Oh yeah, and he was fantastic. I mean, like he was a genius in every way. But he has no influence, very little influence on me whatsoever. Right. And what I'd like to think is that there are jazz players out there who, um, even though they may know, or even though it's a fact that Bill Evans is the most influential, there are young jazz players out there who won't be influenced by Bill Evans. They might be influenced by Phineas Newborn Jr., who arguably was one of the greats, or Mary Lou Williams, or Marion McPartland, and that, and that that would be okay. Uh, I'm worried that there's an orthodoxy that says it is top down. And if you're not influenced by Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, and Bill Evans, then I'm not really going to listen to you. For me, it ended up being a lot of the, the fame. You know, I would hear these names. I would read about them. I remember getting this book when I was a kid and it just had, you know, little biographies on various famous musicians from various genres. And I would be very much like, oh, well, I guess I better 
listen to this. And I don't know how, what your experience was or how you came to it because I didn't have an older brother or something saying, Oh yeah, check this out or what have you. It was more, I had to do a little bit of studying, listen to those people, see what I thought, and then kind of make a decision. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, has that, has, have those deci- decisions stayed with you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I liked what I liked. And of course, I've spent my entire career uh, talking about or, uh, you know, trying to play a little bit of music, what, certainly listening to it, going to concerts. I, I mean, I, it's, it's a huge part of my life. But when I think about how it all came together, you know, I remember even getting, uh, you know, the the 15 cassettes for the penny the penny thing you know and literally picking them out picking out those names uh that were 20 30 years old at the time just because i had kind of heard about these people and i thought i should really you know eat my brussels sprouts and and figure out who some of these people are and i was able to say well i really like that and you know this i could leave what about you where do um, How did that come parenthetically, out? I love the Brussels sprout analogy. <laughs> I remember someone once going to see a jazz concert and that was totally theoretical and, and not really about the music. And yeah. he walked out and he told me, I was totally broccoli, man. All broccoli. <laughs> All uh, broccoli. Yeah. I understand <laughs> yeah, completely. I, understand, exactly. I went and saw Ornette Coleman one time and I, that was sort of an eat your Brussels sprouts moment, you know? It's, yeah. It's and by the way, that's a bit of, no pun intended, a beef haha, <laughs> that I have with some of the music is that, oh my God, like jazz, like classical music can get so theoretical. Right. I wonder if that's going to happen to rock or pop. Can you imagine like going to a rock concert and it's like, they're doing all the correct things. I mean, but- I have seen King Crimson several several times. So, yes, I can sort of imagine that. You know? No comment. I'm angling for a tour with King Crimson, <laughs> so I'm, right. I will not. <laughs> Me and Frippers, yeah. real close yeah. here. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know what? I don't know if this will resonate with you, but um, my heuristic, my way into the music from you know, from, from nowhere, from, 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 from the desert of ignorance into the, into the garden of knowledge was, um, the public library, which kind of was the public library was like the internet before the internet. So before there was an internet, so we're talking about the seventies, um, the, um, uh, public library had these record collections and you could go in and you can borrow five to 10 records. Sign them out. Yeah. After you look at the microfiche. (laughs) Uh, there was a microfiche. Sure. Yeah. That's, this is true. Grab a few actual books. Uh, remember those? Yeah. And um, they were made from a substance called paper, <laughs> paper, paper. But, it, I mean, uh, the library with actual vinyl in it, I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, there's vinyl stores still to there this are day, which stores. is nice. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is an equivalent to the library, and that is SoundCloud or, yeah. or you know, uh, Spotify uh, free account or whatever. Right. You can, instead of taking the records home and dropping the needle and if you didn't like them you turn to the library you drop the needle on your Spotify account the only issue with Spotify is you might drop the needle and get out too quickly I went and saw Brian Eno speak about 10 years ago at the AGO and he said uh, something that really resonated with me and it's stuck with me ever since and that is options are the enemy and uh, it, it's so true because I do think in our current media landscape as it is uh, sometimes that canvas is just too big no direction there uh and and you have to make a decision what you're going to put on and i do think that sometimes you know the the limited resources of your own personal collection were what was available at the library you were you were better off you know i don't know that humans are capable of of reaching into the abyss that is available to us now yeah choice is completely paralytic it's it's and you know i'll go on um I don't have a Spotify account. I'm Google Music Play, sure. but I go on there and it's like one of those. Yeah, where the where the heck do I start? Yeah. I mean, there's too much choice. Uh-huh. Daniela knows about me that I, I I can't go shopping because if there are more than three things to choose from, I I can't I, I won't buy anything. But you know what? Uh, we may be having a. I'm a little older than you, uh-huh. but uh, I'm thinking of Gen X or millennials who may be different from us in that they, they're just more capable of dealing with a, a wider array of choice. Either that or we may, there's some sort of revolt against the current uh, wave of infinite digital possibilities and the crass, dumbed-down uh, world of social media that we're, we're exploring. Now, I would like yeah. to think that there ends up being some sort of correction and all of that. I think you're right. I yeah. think that that's, that's an astute observation. I think... Uh, uh, at least among the millennial and Gen X and Gen Y uh, cohort that I that I know, 
um, they're getting it together and they realize like, you know, this isn't everything at all times available 24 yeah. seven yeah. is not necessarily a good thing. And it was fun to fantasize about briefly. Yeah. But exactly. now that we have it, I don't know that it's been a particular help or has done much for us. Um, what was available to you at the library was a, was a good starting point. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and so I, I could discover this new artist, Joni Mitchell, or I could discover <laughs> a uh, fellow by the name of Debussy, uh, who I later learned was Debussy. Yeah, that's right. And, beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then, I mean, the thunderclap was, I, I actually did not know the name, but there was this record by a guy named Art Tatum. And uh, so, oh, they had a nice cover. So I took it home and he's a piano player. I could right. tell that. And I put it on, and the first track on that particular album was a song called Tiger Rag. And people might even recognize it, sometimes here in advertisements, hold that tiger, da, 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 da. So um, I recognized the name of the song, and I dropped the needle on the vinyl LP. And in two and a half minutes, my world was changed. And here we are decades later, and that track... A, still knocks my socks off, and any listening pianist and maybe any person who loves music would have their socks knocked off, and it's still as as great as ever. And so that kind of discovery and that type of thunderclap moment, which happened over and over and over again through the library, shaped where I am today. It, it's, it's been fun for me to, to speak to people over the, the years who do have a unique love of both jazz and classical music, and it, it forms these very specific careers you talk about Debussy and and Tatum sort of coming at you at the same time and and certainly you've taken both formats into account in your studies and 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 in somewhat somewhat what we hear out of your records I like it very much I mean there's there's a beautiful marriage there if if it done properly well thank you thank you I mean coming from you that it really is an honor and 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 um, it's it's sincere. I don't will it. It's, it's just what comes out naturally. But I have to say this, what I especially love about um, uh, millennial culture and where music and listening have, has gone in the past 20 years is the knocking down of borders. Um, I come from a generation where pigeonholes were pigeonholes and they were hard, hard silos and the verticals were the verticals. Uh, but um, especially with the coming of the iPad, uh, yeah. the, I mean, the iPod, uh-huh. <laughs> to go back to the 90s, but now it's streaming. And really among, to go back to that younger cohort that I know, but some of the older cohort, but mostly the younger cohort, it's music without borders. Right. So any uh, many playlists will have a bit of Debussy, a bit of Art Tatum, uh, some of... Um, Kendrick Lamar, some Robert Glasper, Joni Mitchell, and then and then you know Lather Rinse Repeat, and you're into another cycle with a bit of everything, and that is really cool, and that's what really works for me. You're describing ADD in a in, a, <laughs> in some format there, but I know exactly what you mean. How, and I how, think it, how many ADHDs does it take to change a light bulb? Want to go see a movie? <laughs> Thank you. There it is. Insert the rim shot again. <laughs> uh, tell me. By, by the way, just on that on that point, I got to add. Uh, I had this wonderful review of our show in the um, in the Scotsman, uh, kind of one of Scotland's national newspapers, last summer, and they came up with this term that I'd been looking unknowingly looking for for decades and i think describes what i do wayward eclecticism nice yeah called a wonderfully wayward eclecticism and so yeah it is adhd but at the same time it's eclectic and that can be a bad term uh, some jazz purists have come up to me and said uh eh, i don't like what you do it's too uh, it's too all over the place right. that's cool you yeah. know uh but for me i like the music without borders approach was there a moment ever in this last 20 years as you've been putting out records where you thought, I don't know if I can keep going on with this or, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm out of ideas. I, I, you know, my love for this is being, uh, you know, tried by consistently having to create what's been your, so the question was, there? has the question was, has there ever been a moment when I questioned that? But the question really should be, has there ever been a moment when that hasn't right. been the case? Yeah. Every inch of, uh, of music that I do or I make, every inch of every performance is c- 
can I keep doing this? And I have to tell you, there is no musician, no artist worth their salt that isn't thinking that. If you go to a performance or if you listen to a recording or see a film or, or piece of work from an artist who isn't struggling every single minute with that question, it's like, oh my God, this is so hard, then guarantee you, you will be bored. If you've ever gone to a concert and walked out and haven't felt the love or just felt that like, wow, like the playing was great, but I was unmoved. It's because they're not feeling that at the moment because right. they're not leaving every bit of their innards on the floor. So even people who come to my shows and don't like really care for the music, they get something out of it. And it's not just me. I mean, this is, this is whoever we're all struggling. And actually the way it plays out in the music world, I, 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 I gotta say this like, uh, for, especially for listeners who aren't musicians, um, because non-musicians will come up to us and you've probably had this too, Mark, you know, being in broadcasting and being in the earth, people, non-listeners will come up to us and all they want to talk about is music. I heard this great album. I saw this great concert. Did, sure. you, did you see the new Pat Metheny thing? Me they, talking to my uncle yeah. when I was uh, 15. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it's, basically it's like, it. Yeah. It's the best thing. But when you put the musicians in the room, what do we talk about? The last thing we talk about is the music. Right. All we talk about, oh, I only got this on that gig. Oh, this is so hard. Yeah, I, yeah. I should have got a law degree. And, and, and so, yeah, we're all about that. What artist brings you comfort? I'm at that age now where uh, we were talking about this earlier, where, you know, it is a little harder to, to keep figuring out, you know, who's the next artist I'm going to totally fall in love with. Who's the latest new thing that I've got time for and so on. But lately, I, I, like even yesterday, I brought up my my collection that I have in iTunes that I actually downloaded in there. And it was fun to look through because now, of course, like everybody, I have a streaming software that I use and, and I just kind of blindly maybe grab at something. But it was fun to look at my collection. And lately, I've been trying to maybe pick out a few records that just make me feel good in a world that can be pretty tricky and can really get you down. I'd be fascinated to know what is what's the comfort record for you? What's your soul at ease? I'm 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 just trying to sort through which Coltrane record. Right. Probably uh, uh, John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman. Right. There I go. I picked a vocal record, so yeah. I'm going to back off of that. No, it's fair. I mean, no, actually, he had I, an interesting vocal style. That guy. I mean, J- it's Johnny not, Hartman not did. for everybody, but it's, it's not for everybody. But you know, I I'm gonna um, I lied. I right. just lied because. Um, as much as I loved Johnny Hartman and John Coltrane, really my go-to album from John Coltrane... Sunship. You know, <laughs> um, no. That, that's a, no offense to the Sunship listeners. No. But, it's nothing, I mean, it's nothing kind of, comforting in that. It, well, well, <laughs> people find their comfort in funny places. They do. Mark, you know, they, want, they like but, that bump in the couch. I'm right? telling you, um, I love Supreme. That is deep. You talk about music coming from somewhere other than just the chord changes. Yeah. That, that is deep. There's something about the intro to my favorite things that I find. That too. Blissful. It's like morning sunshine falling on my face or something, you know. That's because you're a Mary Poppins fan. Come on. <laughs> just, just confess. But, you know, I, I mean, equally, equally, uh, you know, for comfort, um, uh, Art Tatum and uh, Buddy DeFranco, the, the clarinetist, like, beautiful, but also... Yasha Heifetz playing the Bach solo violin pieces. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I am a great devotee of Glenn Gould. In fact, Glenn Gould has been a huge influence in my life. I, I was going to bring him up because I know uh, you've been intimate with his music and some of the organizations involved with him. But uh, Yes, he is. Yeah. I like to say he is the great palm print in the wet cement of my adolescent mind. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, there are various albums by Glenn Gould. Uh, he's known for his Bach, but he did an album of the music of Johannes Brahms, which is so meltingly beautiful. Is he it's, talking? Can you hear him chatting away in the background? You, you hear him, uh, you hear him uh, singing away if right. you listen very closely. Right. But if you're really listening, you only hear the music. Mm-hmm. Funny, um, Mike Downs, to get back to him, wrote a great tune for the new album up front called La Cote d'Or. And it's such an earworm. I told Mike, I hate you, Mike, because it's like such an earworm that I found myself actually humming the song when I've been playing it in public. And right. um, I guess that just happens. Yeah. Well, that's 
that's a sign of a good thing. I, would I guess. I yeah. guess it might be annoying to the audience, but I'm having fun. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> talk about this record a little bit uh you you've been working with this outfit for a while uh i'm sure you've had various members who've kind of i don't know if it's been a rock solid membership or if you've kind of had people come and go but what was the intention with building this you you you've worked on solo piano as well but what was the intention of building this this group around you and and what has it allowed you to do and and what did it allow you to do this with this record um First of all, can I make the observation that like, you are so good at what you do? Oh, boy, it's like sheesh. crazy good to listen. Like, the questions you ask are so spot on. Have you ever thought of doing this uh, professionally? <laughs> I, I, I think you really have a future in this. Uh, those are great Wigmoresworld.com. Have a look. Get in touch right there. You probably already went there so you could listen to this. Um, so, intention. Um I had no intention, a bit like that Bugs Bunny cartoon where he gets hit over the head with an anvil when he's on a construction site. And as he's about to fall off the building, another girder comes up to catch him from falling down. Uh, That's kind of my existence. When I first began uh, what became the Symphronica formation, the Symphronica group, about 15 years ago, I just loved the sound. It just just fell right, you know, and, and... Although I've played solo and with saxophones, and I love my saxophone players, Mm -hmm. trumpet players, uh, and I've recorded with them, this is what sounded right. And so uh, I had some arrangements done and did some arrangements and picked tunes. And over the years, it's formed. And as you say, it it hasn't been a a solid uh, group uh, that's been together all the time. It actually started with two clarinets and a cello and viola and, and piano-based drums, and it only took its shape as uh, uh, the group that it is today, which is um, a piano and keyboard, uh, so acoustic and electric, acoustic and electric bass, acoustic and electric guitar, drum kit and percussion, and then an acoustic string quartet, so two violins, viola, and cello. It only took that shape finally about six years ago. And it's at that time that Kevin Barrett, the fantastic guitarist and fantastic friend, uh, became uh, a, a solid part of this and became a music director. And this is all evolutionary. It all just happened over time. So now it does have a shape. And now Kevin is an integral part of it. And and Mike Downs is the bass player, even when he's not available. Um, he's the main bass player. And Alin Homsey, great young violinist who could play Bach one day and then play uh, Stefan Grappelli or Virginia Carter the next day. And it feels like you're taking full advantage of those I try. Those I mean, skills. Yeah. It's, it's funny. People sometimes, I hear often like, oh, you're so generous with your musicians. Thank you. But I actually think they're being generous with me because what they contribute to this. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, you look at bands and it's common. You look at the great Duke Ellington band and you'll talk about Johnny Hodges or Paul Gonsalves or whoever. And 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 a band is is as strong as its members. Right. But uh, I just feel blessed that these great musicians. I'll tell you something that I've noted about it is that, you know, when I think about your early records, it's really, you know, you get a real strong sense of where you're coming from and, and what your intention was with with the compositions and the music. But here with these records, it's nice because I feel like you can go right up front in it or you can really kind of lay back and let your uh, players you know, work the composition and, and, and do what they do. And so we get to hear varying levels of actual piano in the music, which is, which is kind of nice. It shows a nice dynamic. Well, thanks. Uh, you just used the word up front, which yeah. is the title of the album. <laughs> and that's actually where it came from. Right. It's that, you know, you have, uh, if, if you think of it in cinematic terms, you have the, uh, the medium shot and then the close up and then the long shot and the close ups are on different members. So, you know, I'm up front most, for most of the songs. It's kind of my my recording, but uh, by no means am I up front on, on all of them. And we take great care 
when I work with Kevin to put together a solo order, we take great care to try and balance things out and to play to the strengths of the musicians. And uh, with great soloists like Alin Homsey or Mike Downs or Kevin Barrett and or Raphael Weinroth Brown, our our cellist, uh, even Lawrence Shifley, our violist, which is, you don't really hear a lot of viola in jazz these days, or Brielle Goheen our other violinists, um, there, were, there was an, a concerted effort to try and bring them up front and, 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 and to share that. And, you know, I mean, ensemble pieces, right? Uh, um, um, when you have an ensemble piece, you don't, in my opinion, you don't want to go see the one person. If you've ever gone to a Shakespeare play uh, or any play whatsoever where uh, it's about a cast of characters and you have that one actor who's kind of hogging the spotlight, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we get it. You're a great actor, but, you know, you're the better actor for being part of the group, right? You know, and, and so that's more interesting to me. I'm, I, you know, I've, I've spoken my piece. There's enough of me out there that if you, if you, if you really want to hear me solo, by all means, like my my last recording was a solo album. Sure. By all means, you know, go get it. But what I love is is like the group work, you know, and it's like seeing a solo dancer or seeing a whole troop of dancers. I'll go out and do my pirouettes every so often, but isn't it cool when we're all dancing together, you know, across the stage? Uh, and I just want to dispel any notions of me in a tutu in case I've evoked well, that. you're wearing one right now. Oh, so. Mark. <laughs> you weren't supposed to mention that. Uh, and you already got the next project on the go. And uh, you know what? Even just looking at pictures, I wasn't able to be at the show last Thursday. But uh, uh, You have a doctor's note, don't you? Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, it's here somewhere. But even just the look of that concert had a very specific tone to it. The way everybody was positioned on stage and the lighting. And it looks like, you know, it's pretty something pretty special for you right now. Thanks. Uh, well, music is a visual art. Yeah. And um, even though I unintended trumpet instrumental music uh, and I want the music to speak for itself to, to music to speak for the music I don't want the spectacle uh, the visual spectacle to overtake the music it's not enough it's not enough just to go on stage and just play um, I think that lean back experience that was the concert experience it's not that it's not that old a concert experience I mean the idea of going into a hall or going into a club and sitting back and then having someone sit on stage and play is is no more than, well, certainly no more than 150 years old, right. and maybe even just 100 years it's old. Like, it's like the old Joe Rogan joke uh, that he just told on his latest uh, uh, special that he did on Netflix. That's two people ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm yeah. so going to use that. Yeah, yeah. It is totally two people ago. So, you know, I got to make it. You're sitting there. I got to uh, bring you in. So we do spend time on things like uh, lighting and how the band is positioned for visuals. It's not going to be the show, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's the underwear of the show. <laughs> and and uh, you're feeling good. Otherwise, uh, you've got uh, uh, this incredible latest project, and that continues. You've got another project on the go. You've got your, your law practice. You feel, it feels like you're doing all right. You know, um, I come from Jewish culture, yeah. and uh, in Jewish culture, well, Yiddish culture, sure. so, so uh, Eastern European Ashkenaz yeah. culture, and in Yiddish culture, the glass isn't half empty, and the glass isn't half full. It's almost totally empty, it's cracked, there's a spot on it, and then it's about to be completely empty. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, you can complain about everything, but when I stand back, it's a privileged life. I meet the best people. And would mom and dad be okay with where it's all gone? Funny story about that. So my mom was always, I could never do any wrong. My mother's only complaint was, how, how come Miles Davis makes so much money and you're not like Miles you Davis? You don't have a TV show. You, you should be like Miles Davis. So that was her only complaint. God right. bless mom. Right. But dad, when I went back to me, came back to music 20 years ago, he was, he was, uh, borderline uh, uh, throw myself off the cliff for those moments when your son tells you he's going to be a jazz musician. Right. And uh, he could only say, you're a lawyer, you're a French professor with a PhD, and you're going to be a jazz musician? Uh, I'm heartbroken. That's the oldest story in the book. It's an old story. But just towards the end of his life, so he passed about 10 years ago, uh, he came to a show I did at a club, actually with this group, with the Symphronica group, and it was packed, and we had a great reception that night. And he calls me the next day, and he says, 
Ronnie, I was at your show last night. And I said, I know, Dad. I introduced you to the whole audience. <laughs> yeah. And he pauses and he says, uh, not bad. And that's when I knew Dad was good. You know, he was about a year away from his end, and I think it ended well, right? Right. right. And I think that's a good place to leave it. And uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, Mark Wigmore, for everything that you do. That is it. Great to speak with Ron, and I'm glad his old man came around, right? Ron will be performing with his ensemble Symphronica this Saturday, February 15th, and then again on May 23rd at the Bathurst Centre for Culture. That's 918 Bathurst Street in downtown Toronto. Tickets and info at bemusenetwork.com or his website, rondavismusic.com. Thank you once again to our sponsors today, Red Eye Media and the Great Crows Theatre. And thank you to you. Thanks for checking out the show. Please do get in touch. Say hello. We do have a Art at the End of the World Facebook page. Uh, We have a Twitter page, at Art at the End. And my Instagram handle, Mark Wigmore, is at Wigdad. We're back on Monday with one of my favorite people to talk to and a true auteur of documentary film. Alan Zweig, and uh, looking forward to having Alan here in the studios. We'll speak to you then, and for as long as we can. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.